0: So at the time, the arrest story was considered inflammatory enough to have uh, triggered everything that came later.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research
0: the history of New York sports media. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains.
1: And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. The Tulsa Massacre is the deadliest outbreak of white terrorist violence against a black community in American history. In 1921, Tulsa's Greenwood District, or Black Wall Street, was the wealthiest black community in the United States. Yet during the evening of May 31st, in the early morning hours of June 1st, 1921, Tulsa exploded, enraged by rumors that a black man had attempted to rape a white woman a white mob invaded the Greenwood district, indiscriminately killing any black person it encountered. What I just read is the introduction of the book, Tulsa 1921 Reporting a Massacre. To mark the 100th anniversary of this historic tragedy and to look at the role of journalism in it, our guest today is the book's author, journalist Randy Crabell, who has been a Tulsa World reporter since 1979. Randy, welcome to the show. In 1999, the Tulsa World assigned you to take over coverage of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission and to research the riot yourself. What motivated you to turn your research into a book?
0: Well, uh, I'd say about uh, five or six years ago, I began thinking about the fact that uh, I was getting older. I probably wasn't going to be around forever, and I had all of this stuff that I'd accumulated probably probably a couple thousand pages of, of, of information and in it, that it'd probably be a good idea to try and put it into some kind of coherent na- narrative for whoever you know, came along next to cover this story because the story wasn't gonna go away. And, and so originally it was gonna be kind of an internal document, um, but sort of one thing led to another and then it, and then it became a book.
1: Great. So let's start at the beginning and go over what happened on May 31st and June 1st, 1921 in Tulsa. First, give us some context of what race relations were like in Tulsa before the massacre.
0: Um, you know, it was kind of an interesting place. The uh, the the black community, to a large extent, lived uh, separately uh, from the white community, and by that I mean it had its own, uh, it own, its own business district, kind of its own economy. The police officers who patrolled uh, what was, uh, you know, what we now think of as Greenwood were were uh, black officers, um, and so it, it was kind of uh, it was kind of separate. Um, it, but I think there was probably a, a, a also a growing dissatisfaction uh, on the part of the African-American population because they still had this uh, second or third class status, and on the part of some of the white population because uh, uh, you you had a a black population that was basically beginning to think for itself and, and not be content in a in a in a secondary role or a or a uh, uh, subservient um, subservient role uh, a subservient role. So th- there was uh, undoubt- there must have been some tension under the surface for for what to for what happened to have happened.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned the Greenwood District. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that in particular and why the area was known as Black Wall Street.
0: Um, around uh, so, uh, around 1905, uh, some uh, black residents began moving into the northeast corner of uh, what was the city's original town site. And this was an area kind of centered around uh, Archer and Greenwood streets or Archer Street and Greenwood Avenue and just uh, north of the Frisco Railroad tracks. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of black folks had come to the, Tulsa for the same reasons that a lot of white folks came there, uh, which was opportunity. And although a lot of them uh, had jobs in the white community, um, they lived and traded in the black community. They, there were a lot of businesses started there. And the people in the community kind of decided they were going to keep their money in in that community uh, to the greatest degree possible. So, um, so that built up a pretty good uh, uh, middle class, uh, and some people, you know, were doing were doing pretty well. Um, it, it came to be known. Uh, the story is is that Booker T. Washington visited in, in 1911 and referred to it as the Black Wall Street of the Southwest or the Black Wall Street of America. No one's ever really confirmed that that happened. But at any point, pretty early on, it kind of acquired that name. And, um, you know, it wasn't a Wall Street in the sense that you had uh, financial institutions or or uh, uh, you know, stock brokerages, things that we today we associate with Wall Street. Um, And and I say sometimes that it was really more like a a Main Street because you had all of these uh, businesses. They were all pretty much uh, mom and pop operations, hotels, uh, cafes, uh, small uh, stores. You had movie theaters. Uh, You had a a, a small... uh, professional class, uh, and, and there seems to have been a lot of what I'd call skilled tradesmen, you know, plumbers and carpenters and people like that who actually, you know, could go out and, um, and, and work in in the white world and, and make a pretty good living and bring it back. And for the most part, they invested that money in their community. They built houses uh, and, like I said, businesses. I mean, one one fairly common thing seems to be that when someone got a few thousand dollars together, they'd build a house, and the house, uh, instead of having two or three bedrooms, the house would have ten bedrooms, and and so it became a rooming house, and which was a way for, um, you know, for them to make to make more money, and they, you know, and they and they built from there. So, a lot of int- entrepreneurial. Spirit
1: so what prompted the Tulsa race massacre that took place on May 31st and June 1st 1921
0: well you know I would say the short answer is that it was um, it was probably there's disagreements about this but it was probably you know white people who were angry that uh, uh, some black folks had the temerity to get outside of their uh, you know, established social position. That's that's kind of the short answer. The the longer answer is that it was uh, a series of incidents that happened, actually beginning on May thirtieth, and culminating on June first, um, in which a in which a, a young black man was arrested on a kind of dubious attempted assault. Charge And in those days, attempted assault was understood to mean attempted rape. And uh, that, that, and that uh, this led to a, a, a white crowd uh, surrounding the county courthouse where he was being held. And that in turn led to, um, you know, some black uh, men going to the courthouse with guns to protect this young man who was known as Dick Rowland um there was a struggle over one of those guns and it went off and that was and that was the start of everything that was on the night of, uh, of may 31st 1921 on the morning of June 1st um most of the black residents of the greenwood area either fled or were taken into custody and removed from the area and uh and then a, 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 a a gang, gangs or mobs, however you want to describe them, of, of men went in to the Greenwood area and burned it to the ground, 35 square blocks. Uh, there were some, uh, blacks who stayed behind and fought and, uh, you know, at least some of those, some of those people were killed. So, um, you know, it's a, and there were, you know, there were a lot of racial incidents across the United States, uh, you know, really through, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say throughout our history, but in a concentrated period, you had, you know, from uh, just before World War II and after World War II, and then a more, so in this late teens, early 20s period, and then, but if you want to put in a bigger, uh, uh end on it or uh, you know bigger time frame you know you can go from the end of reconstruction up till probably you know <laughs> uh for sure World War II and then we have a kind of a different kind of uh, racial strife after World War II um but but this one was was largely you know uh, as these all are it was a result of the conditions of the time and 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 the idea um, you know I think the term probably gets it gets worked pretty hard these days but you know really uh, the the idea of of white supremacy is it, it plays in pretty heavily and by white supremacy I don't necessarily mean people in you know robes and hoods. I mean, just the concept that, you know, we're, we're the, we're the people giving the orders and, and you people over there are the ones that take the orders and don't try and change it.
1: So discussing journalism specifically now, the Tulsa Tribune broke the story with the headline, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. And it's believed there was an editorial about the potential lynching of Roland uh, called to lynch Negro tonight. Tell us about this coverage and the impact of it, as well as the mystery behind that editorial.
0: Well, the, the, um, so the incident on the elevator, and I'll explain that a little bit because I don't, I don't think we have yet, but, uh, on, uh, on, on May the 30th, which was, um, uh, Memorial day and, and most of downtown was closed. um, a young black man who was known as Dick Rowland was in a a building downtown called the Drexel building. And he got on the elevator, which was operated by a a white teenager uh, named Sarah Page. And nobody really knows exactly what happened, but she screamed. And when the elevator got to the ground floor, the doors opened, Dick Rowland ran away. And, uh, you know, there was somebody there who, you know, listened to Sarah Page. They called the police, and and it was alleged that he had attacked her on the elevator. Later, it it developed that that's probably not what happened. It was probably more a case of, you know, the elevator lurched and he fell against her or startled her in some way. But at any rate, rate, that that happened on May the 30th. It got no attention whatsoever in the press. On May 31st, the Tribune, which was the afternoon uh, paper, ran in the bottom right-hand uh, column uh, the story that you described, uh, Arrest Negro. And uh, it, was, it, it, it was pretty uh, highly charged language for that period. And I think if we read it today, you know, we kind of read it and we, and we cringe at it, we might not have the same reaction as people back then did. Because anytime you know this was this was any anytime there was any kind of a allegation that a black man had done something improper towards a white uh, girl or a white woman, you were likely to get some kind of extra legal activity. In other words, a lynching or an attempted lynching or something like that. And uh, and so in this uh, fairly brief report, it, it you know talks about how he had. Corner close, and and it's not even clear that that actually happened. Keep in mind, the reporter was not there; he was getting all this second or third hand. And and so then uh, in on May, the, the, uh, the story actually didn't come out until after he was arrested, which was a day after the event actually happened. He was taken to the city jail. And. Um, the uh, the police commissioner uh, said that he received a telephone call saying we're going to get this guy and we're going to do something with him. So they moved him to the county jail, which was a more secure uh, facility. It was on the top floor of the county courthouse, very difficult to get into from the outside. So the effect of the, of the Tribune story was to sort of galvanize whatever sort of uh, uh, tension was out there between, uh, between the races. And, uh, it's not really clear how many people were, were interested in really lynching Dick Rowland. There were a lot of people who showed up at the courthouse, but it wasn't like they were exactly banging on the doors, trying to get in. They were just kind of milling around, waiting for somebody to to do something it seems like Um, so so that was the effect of of that story now the editorial um in my opinion probably never existed in the in the way that it's described and and there are a number of reasons for that one of which is no one can find a copy of it but um But the short answer as to why I think it it probably doesn't exist or the the evidence I find most compelling is that the the sources that were most critical of the Tribune and its role in what happened, which is the Tulsa World, uh, the NAACP and the Crisis uh, Magazine, and the Black Dispatch, which was out of Oklahoma City, is that all of them mentioned the arrest story as being the 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 uh, igniter of, of the riot and none of them said anything about an editorial and in fact the black dispatch published the arrest story in its entirety under the headline the story that set tulsa ablaze so at the time i mean that that the the, the arrest story was considered inflammatory enough to have um, triggered everything that came later.
1: So more broadly, how would you describe the coverage of the Tulsa Tribune and its competitor, the Tulsa World, during this time, and how much did it matter?
0: I think both of them were probably pretty reflective of the times. In other words, I don't, I don't know that they so much drove public opinion as they reflected it and perhaps amplified it. Well, I'm sure they amplified it. Um, the the world had been started as a uh, as a Republican paper, and in fact, the name for for the Tulsa World probably came from the Lawrence uh, Journal World. When the Tulsa World was started in 1906, they brought a uh, uh, an editor down from Lawrence, uh, named Brady, to run it and his family had owned the newspaper in, in uh, Lawrence. And, um, you know, in those days, uh, most uh, African-Americans, if they voted, they voted Republican. So it was a little more um, sympathetic to the to black Tulsans. Uh, the uh, Tribune was the afternoon paper. afternoon papers tended to be the working class paper and it was the Democratic paper. it it, it liked to think of itself as a crusading paper, and it it had been on a crusade against Greenwood. It's not really clear if this was strictly because they considered Greenwood to be uh, a bad place, or if they were working in concert with some other interests who were wanting to move the the, uh, Black uh, residential area further, further north, so that uh, the, the, where Greenwood was could be used for industrial purposes. But it, at any rate, um, prior to, the, prior to the, the massacre, they had uh, published a series of stories and kind of instigated a state investigation about uh, vice conditions in Tulsa in, in general, but sort of concentrating on, on, uh, on Greenwood. And so I think, you know, all of that stuff plays in. Uh, and, you know, for me, everybody reads these things differently. But for me, the thing that was really eye-opening to read both papers was how, uh, how ingrained into everything uh, racism was. So even a story that wasn't necessarily intended to be derogatory towards uh, African-Americans or American Indians or women or any other m- minority— um actually in many cases was um, through the use of language and just sort of the way in uh, the tone and the way the way people were portrayed So to kind of summarize I mean there was not anything that said hey let's go let's go kill a bunch of uh, black people or let's go burn down Greenwood there were, there was nothing like that but it but it, the language sort of fostered the the uh, the attitudes that led to that.
1: So, what was the immediate aftermath in Tulsa after this massacre?
0: Um, well, of course, for the for the people uh, who lived and worked in Greenwood, it was just utter devastation. You know, you had thousands of people who were homeless, and in many cases, had lost everything they had. Um, I think in in, in the, among the white population, there was also a certain amount of shock. That this had really happened. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, not to get uh, to go overboard on this, but if you think about the reaction uh, many people had after the storming of the Capitol on, on, uh, you know, earlier this year, uh, it's not the same thing. But you know, people were just kind of shocked, regardless of how they felt about the issues involved. They were shocked. There was a lot of embarrassment. Uh, and then there were a few people who actually were trying to um, capitalize on the situation by uh, 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 getting control of the of the burn district, as it was sometimes called, or, or at least part of the area that was destroyed in the, in the massacre, uh, to do what I had mentioned earlier, which was to to move the black population further. Away from downtown and uh, to turn uh, that area into uh, an industrial area, there were four railroads that went through Greenwood. And in fact, uh, the what what's called Deep Greenwood, or you know, the original around Greenwood and Archer, wasn't really a great place to live. I mean, you had four railroads going through there. It was kind of in a low spot, so the drainage was poor, and it, when it rained. Heavily, it could be cut off from the rest of the town. Um, it didn't have uh, uh, water or sewer systems. Very few of the streets were paved. So um, you know, it, so there there was an argument to be made that it was better suited for a, a uh, an industrial area. Unfortunately, the the, the way the the, the way they, they went about doing it was was not good.
1: In your book, you note the phrase conspiracy of silence describes the years that followed as if the event had never even happened. Children weren't taught about it in school, and from 1921 into the 1990s, the Tulsa Race Massacre was rarely mentioned in the local papers. So why and how did this finally rise to consciousness in Oklahoma in more recent years?
0: I think time has something to do with it. Um, people finally got where they could, um, uh, talk about it. Um, but, uh, you know, and a more specifically, it, it really probably started about in 1971, which was the 50th anniversary. And there was a, a story written about it, um, by a man named Ed Wheeler. And he actually interviewed, you know, people who were around at that time, and had a kind of a hard time getting the story published it did eventually come out and then uh, you know not too long after that a, uh, a he was a student at that time named uh, Scott Ellsworth began getting um, collecting uh, uh, interviews with survivors and and that became a uh, a doctoral thesis. And then later on, it became a book called death in the death in a promised land. And, and so all of those things kind of were little step ups. And then in the, in the 1990s, um, the state agreed to create this commission to look at what happened in Tulsa and determine what, if anything should be done. And, um, and it was largely through that commission that it that it really began to gain a lot of notice, especially outside of Tulsa. It, you know, I did not grow up in Tulsa, but I've lived here over forty years now. And, and And it's a strange thing you'd have some people who knew quite a lot about it, and you'd have some people who knew nothing about it. And i i I think over, I think that that's not unusual. I mean, I think people tend to know less about the history of places they live, unless they live in a particularly historic place, you know, like Gettysburg or, you know, someplace like that, they don't think much about their own history. They think about, you know, the, the U.S. history. Um, and I also think uh, for many, many, many years, history as taught in the public schools was not intended to to inspire um, critical thinking, so much as it was just to try and create some kind of a, a common narrative that everybody sort of could agree on. And it was really intended more to uh, create a, a, a sense of place and a sense of belonging, some kind of a, of a pride in, in, in place. And so I think that's changed a little bit in recent years, and uh, but but the the, the commission, which uh, the original commission from the late '90s and early 2000s, really brought to light a lot of a lot of material. And then another thing that's happened is the digital age, and so it turns out that a lot of documents that people thought didn't exist were buried in archives somewhere. And now a lot of those are, are accessible online. And, um, you know, anybody can, uh, if, they, if they have a mind, can go and, and dig these things up. When, when I started in, you know, late 99, early 2000s, I was told there were no newspapers from that era, that the newspapers either didn't report about it or the newspapers' records had all been destroyed. And I found out pretty quickly that neither of those was true. It had been heavily reported on and the newspapers were on the microfilm. And uh, I've had people tell me that some of the microfilm had been tampered with, but I I never encountered that when I was was looking for it. So there's just been a lot of things that have changed over there. And also, I think there's a little bit more willingness to be Uh, upfront and honest about things. Like I said, it's, some of this is time. I mean, if you think about how long it's taken some Americans to deal with the civil war, some of us are still dealing with that. And, and um, so, you know, I think there's, there's enough distance now uh, between the event that, that some of the trauma and, fear and emotions and that sort of thing have, have, have uh, faded just enough for, for people to have discussions about it.
1: In October 2020, there was national media coverage that a potential mass burial site was found. What is the latest in unraveling what happened 100 years ago?
0: Yeah. Um, well, where, uh, where we stand right now is that they're hoping next summer to exhume those remains and try and do some DNA tests on them and and determine uh, and and other kinds of of examinations to see if they can uh, prove that they're from the massacre and maybe get an idea of who uh, some of the um, remains are of. and then, uh, and and then they, it hasn't been determined what will happen with those remains, whether they'll be returned uh, to Oaklawn or uh, if they'll be buried somewhere else as part of some kind of uh, memorial. So, in terms in terms of the search for uh, remains, that's that's where where we are. It, Uh, Some people are frustrated because it's a slow process, but they're trying to be um, as deliberate and careful as possible and and, and get everything right. Um, You know, in terms of of other things, uh, there's still a lot of discussion about what should happen to what's left of of Greenwood. I mean, there's only about a block and a half of the original Greenwood, and, and this is it's not even the original Greenwood. It, it's, for the most part, buildings that were built right after the massacre in the early 20s. There's about a block or block and a half of those left. And they've been struggling for, you know, 50 years almost now, 40 years, I guess, at least, to, to try and make those uh, viable in some way. And, um, and there's a lot of discussion and debate and hard feelings about who, who should control that, how, how that gets done. So, so in that sense, you know, the legacy kind of lives on. There's a real desire to maintain the, the spirit of Greenwood in terms of businesses and entrepreneurship. Um, but, it, but it's a struggle.
1: The Kansas City Star recently did a separate historical analysis of its own newspaper and printed a large project acknowledging its own racist past. What are the Tulsa World's plans to mark the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre? And does it include any kind of acknowledgment of complicity in those decades of silencing this event and or in its coverage of the event?
0: Well, that is still being uh, talked about. Um, I don't know that there's any... uh, uh, there are any plans to do something like what the Kansas city star did, uh, did we have, I'd say over the last 20 or 25 years, uh, tried to acknowledge, uh, we were wrong, uh, on things as, as it comes up. And by that, I mean, just for instance, with the, with the race massacre and the things that I've written, I've tried to be pretty, uh, up front and say, you know, so the, the, on the one hand, the world did editorialize in favor of the property rights of the, of the black people who were uh, affected by the riot. On the other hand, the Tulsa world was very, uh, adamantly segregationist for a long time. And, um, uh, did not in the early 1920s was dead set against the idea of what was called, uh, social equality. In other words, the, 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 the mixing of races or the idea that black people were in any way, the, the equal of, of white people, uh, again, the, the sort of the basic concept of white supremacy. So, um, so I, I, you know, I, other than that, I think I think we've been more focused on how do we tell the story of Greenwood rather than our own story. And um, one of the things that we would like to do is uh, to focus on what's going on there now and what's what's happened since the massacre, because that's a Pretty interesting story unto itself. Uh, we we published a um, a special section in 2020 on the 99th anniversary of the massacre that uh, re- restated and some co- in some cases introduced new information about the massacre itself. So now what we want to try and do is is uh, Talk about the bigger community. I mean, Greenwood uh, rose after the massacre and and was actually bigger and more prosperous than ever and reached its peak probably uh, around in the early 1950s. And then it began a a decline again. It had gone pretty far downhill by the late 60s and early 70s. Urban renewal came in, uh, demolished almost everything. Um, a new highway went through and, and sort of cut, cut it, uh, the traditional greenwood in two, uh, there were some plans that never came about. And so long story short, since, you know, probably the late sixties, m- most of the old green, greenwood has been almost like a wasteland. And and uh, the, the African-Americans in, in the Tulsa area have tried for decades to find some way to, to bring it back, and, and that's still going on.
1: And then our last question of the show is, why does journalism history matter?
0: Well, I mean, it's like all history. You have to understand... Um, to understand where you are, you have to understand how you got there. And... Um, and you also have to understand the role that journalism plays in society. Um, are you? Uh, I, I mean, one of the big lessons from this, uh, one of the first ones I learned, and of course, I already knew it, but this really brought it home, is that words really have power and they really mean mean something. And once once they're uttered, once they're in print, they they don't go away and um and so we have one of the uh, sort of defining um, elements of this race massacre was a a story about an arrest that today might not even get in in a newspaper uh or on television or on radio and because the intemperate use of words contributed greatly to, you know, to the deaths of we don't really know how many people and, and destroying uh, the lives of thousands of people. Um, and sometimes history, we understand it better through history than we do by looking, you know, by standing back a little bit, we can see those things more clearly. But until you understand how how journalism has worked in the past, it's hard to understand how it works today.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at JHistory Journal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Fenneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.